Good morning. Good morning. Hey, uh, was there a game on last night or something? Was that heartbreaking or what? For those who don't know, our very own Purdue Boilermakers were one free throw away from the Final Four. That hurts. But not for Virginia fans. What is terrible for us is wonderful for them. That's how basketball and other sports work. And that's actually a segue to our scripture text for today. Because that's, that's how it'll be at the final judgment. What's terrible for some is wonderful for others. Let me just say before we really get into it, that preaching on the final judgment is not for the faint of heart. But that's exactly what I must do today. Kathy's smiling because I've already told her this. If I'm totally transparent with you, I was really hoping that I'd be on paternity leave today so Kathy Nimmer would have to preach this one. (laughs) But I must tell you, I have been blessed by God for the opportunity to wrestle with this scripture passage that was assigned for this Sunday. There's a story in Genesis 32 where Jacob wrestles with a mysterious man of God. Anybody know that, that kind of strange story? Jacob wrestles with this man of God, and he will not quit until he is blessed. This has often been used as a metaphor for reading scripture. Sometimes reading scripture is like a wrestling match between us and the Holy Spirit. It is exhausting at times, both intellectually and emotionally. But if we stay with it long enough, we will be both broken and blessed, as was Jacob. This is exactly where we need to be before God, broken and blessed. As Jesus teaches Blessed are the broken, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So I pray that my wrestling with this passage on judgment may be a real help to you as you wrestle with this passage. And I pray for a blessing to come upon each one of us here this morning. Let's pray. Yes, Lord, we do pray for your blessing as we hear your scriptures read and proclaimed. And as we just sang about moments ago, blessings come in many forms, sometimes as assurance, sometimes as conviction, sometimes as undeserved mercy, sometimes as tough love. Give us just what we need today to live according to your good and beautiful purposes for us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Today we carefully examine the final teaching of Jesus in the Gospel of Matthew. Matthew arranges Jesus' teachings into five sections. Today is the, fifth, is the final teaching on the fifth and final section. In other words, it's a really big deal. Inspired by the Spirit of God, this, this passage we're about to read, It is the teaching Matthew once imprinted on our consciences as Jesus' final teaching. It is the awesome story of world judgment. 
Or in simpler terms, it's the story of the bad place versus the good place. Listen carefully, very carefully, to the words of Jesus recorded in Matthew 25, starting with verse 31. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on the throne of his glory. All the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will put the sheep on his right hand and the goats at the left. Then the king will say to those at his right hand, Come, you that are blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you gave me clothing. I was sick, and you took care of me. I was in prison, and you visited me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when was it that we saw you hungry and gave you food, or thirsty and gave you something to drink? And when was it that we saw you a stranger and welcomed you, or naked and gave you clothing? And when was it that we saw you sick or in prison and visited you? The king will answer them, Truly I tell you, just as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers and sisters, you did it to me. Then he will say to those at his left hand, You that are accursed, depart from me into the eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me no food. I was thirsty, and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger, and you did not welcome me. Naked, and you did not give me clothing. Sick, and in prison, and you did not visit me. Then they will also answer, Lord, when was it that we saw you hungry or thirsty, or a stranger, or naked, or sick, or in prison, and did not take care of you? And he will answer them, Truly I tell you, just as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Like it or not, this is the word of our Lord Jesus. Last week, we heard a parable of Jesus about judgment. A parable is a simple, made-up story that reflects a real profound truth. If you weren't here last week, the truth from last week was this. People who call themselves Christians must make sure that they really are Christians by carrying the oil of love in their hearts. Such love, if it is truly the love of Christ they possess, is always a love that extends to their neighbor. Today's teaching about final judgment builds upon 
that parable, but it widens the scope and it intensifies the situation. This time around, the target audience is not just Christians, but all the nations. Every human being on the planet is implicated. All the nations will be gathered before the Son of Man, the King, who is Jesus, and then Jesus will get to work. We should also note from the outset that this is not a parable. Jesus just finished telling three parables of judgment, and these mirrored three parables of faith he told earlier. This is his outline, three and three. But now, as Jesus brings his teaching to a close, he speaks not in riddles, rather he reveals. This is the that what he reveals is a real future event that concludes world history as we know it. This is the event that ends the world we know and begins the fullness of God's world that we do not yet know. It is no mere illustration that Jesus is using here. We must be clear on this. In this passage, Jesus speaks of a great future event that is surely coming when Jesus returns as king. On that day, Jesus himself will judge every individual with both supreme mercy and perfect justice. Now, none of this ought to come as a surprise for most of us who have grown up in the church. What may come as a surprise is what scholar Dale Bruner calls the all-decisive norm of judgment. The all-decisive norm of judgment that Jesus uses. What is the standard that Jesus uses for determining who enters the bad place and who walks away from it? What is the criteria Jesus uses for deciding who goes where, heaven or hell? What is the grading rubric, if you will, that Jesus uses in this last great final exam that we all must face? The answer, according to Jesus' words in this passage, may be as much of a shock to us as it was to the religious folks who first heard it in Jesus' own day. What is the answer? What is the all-decisive norm of judgment? Well, faith, most of us well-trained in the church would say. Belief in God. If one accepts Jesus or not, that's the standard for who goes to the bad place and who goes to the good place, right? Well, what does it mean to accept Jesus according to this passage? How does Jesus frame it here in this final teaching of Matthew, this teaching he clearly wants imprinted on the consciences of every person. Look again, verse 34. Then the king will say to those at his right hand, Come you that are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you. For, for what? For you professed faith in me? For you agreed with the basic tenets of Christianity? For you were baptized in the church. For what? 
for I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. Naked, you gave me clothing. Sick, you took care of me. Prison, and you visited me. Now, what is the criteria used for the other group of people? For those that ultimately find themselves in the bad place at the end of the world, Jesus calls this bad place by the name hell 11 times, which is a small percentage, all things considered. But don't be mistaken, he refers to life without God far more than that, preferring to use metaphors like darkness and fire and prison So what is the criteria that Jesus uses for judging this group of people, which results in them finding their forever home in the bad place? Listen closely again to Jesus' words. You that are accursed, depart from me into the eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. For for what? For you never darkened the doors of a church, For you never quite grasped the correct understanding of things? Are you beginning to feel uncomfortable? Now you know why I didn't want to preach this passage. You that are accursed, depart from me. For I was hungry, and you gave me no food. I was a stranger, and you did not welcome me. Naked, sick, in prison. What may also come as a surprise to us is just how clueless both groups are about what they did or didn't do. They had no awareness that they were serving Jesus or not serving him. Turns out, Jesus is far more present in this world than we tend to think. So, If the Gospel of Matthew is trustworthy, and these are truly the words of Jesus, which I fully believe they are, and I hope you do too, then what are we to make of them? Is Jesus really saying that the final judgment will be based on how we treat the poor, the prisoner, and other seemingly insignificant people? What about the marvelous discovery of the Protestant Reformation, from which this very congregation gets its heritage. It's only by grace that we are saved, through faith, not by works. Is this not true? Because this right here sounds a whole lot like we're judged by our works, by what we did and didn't do. What in the world is going on here, Jesus? My friends, welcome to the wrestling mat. This is where we must wrestle with the Holy Spirit as we read the scriptures and we try to make sense of them all. Prepare to sweat this one out. I feel like another prayer is in order. (laughs) Holy Spirit of God, you promised to lead your church into all truth. So lead us into this truth right now, we pray. Amen. Let's slow down for a minute. 
My guess is that some of you may not see why I'm making such a big deal about this. You may not see any tension at all in what Jesus is saying compared to what others in the church have said. So let's all get on the same page for a minute. For those who don't know, there is a key figure in the early church, second only to Jesus, and his name was Paul. We call him the Apostle Paul because apostle means sent. And he was sent by the risen Jesus to spread Jesus' message throughout the known world. Now, Paul famously said this in one of his letters, a letter that made its way into the trustworthy New Testament. He said, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not the result of works, so that no one may boast. Fast forward in history, about 1,500 years. Early 1500s, these words from Paul were life-changing for a guy. Anybody know what this man's name is? Martin Luther. (laughs) Martin Luther was a devoted monk in the Catholic Church. Catholic Church was the only church in the West at the time. This was before we had all these other denominations. And Luther saw in this passage freedom. (laughs) He saw a remarkable freedom from all the requirements of the Catholic Church of that time. At that time, the Catholic Church had laid out all these rules and regulations and said that one had to follow them all and in the right order if one was to enter the good place and not the bad place. But what, Paul, what Luther found in Paul's teachings was this. He found freedom from all the religious hoops, and he embraced the gospel of God's free grace. Are you tracking with me? This is actually quite important for understanding what Jesus is talking about in the final judgment. So let's keep going. Luther also saw in Paul's teaching a completely different picture of God than the one he had carried with them for so long. Pastor A.W. Tozer once wrote, What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. What comes into our mind when we think about God is the most important thing about us. What comes into your mind when you think of God? For Luther, what came into his mind before this great discovery was a God that was much like a harsh, judgmental dictator. It was a God that was just waiting for him to trip up so he could point out his faults. Luther's mental picture of God was that of a grimly watching big brother who was always threatening to remove his love if he didn't behave in the right way. That was Luther's picture of God, and it shaped his entire life up to this point. But then Luther makes this discovery of God's free grace, unearned love. And the picture he gets is not of that God, but of a gracious, benevolent God who freely bestows mercy and requires nothing but faith in Jesus to be saved. 
So Luther's understanding of the Christian faith was transformed and the rest of the church with him. I praise God for Luther's recovery of the gospel of grace with all my heart. And I am grateful for the church's reformation. Thanks to Luther, the church began to see just how wonderful the gospel really is. Just how basic are the entrance requirements. We don't have to jump through all these religious hoops. We just have to do what Paul says in Romans 10. If you confess with your lips that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For one believes with the heart and so is justified, made right with God. And one confesses with the mouth and so is saved. Amen? Amen indeed. But now we return to Jesus and his haunting account at the end of history. And what do we see Jesus saying about the final judgment? We see Jesus giving us a picture of a massive worldwide convocation. Imagine all people past and present and future gathered together before Jesus. Jesus is both king and judge, and what he does is simple. He divides people up based on a single standard, one's treatment of the least of these, one's treatment of poor, needy people like prisoners and sick people. So again, we must ask, Jesus, what in the world is going on here? Did Paul misunderstand you? Did Luther not understand you? Or perhaps we have misunderstood Paul. I'm going to tell you what I think is going on. In the Protestant world, I think we have remained suspicious of what's called works righteousness. For the past 500 years, I think we have been on guard for anything that looks like works righteousness. This is the idea that we can somehow earn God's favor by doing good. If only we do enough good, then we'll be saved. This is a bad idea. And Luther exposes it because Jesus teaches against it. How much good is ever enough if that's the way it works? So whatever is going on in the final judgment picture of Matthew 25, it's not works righteousness. No one is earning the inheritance of the kingdom as if God owed them something. Rather, in Matthew 25, Jesus is graciously declaring a certain group of people blessed, blessed of my Father. Jesus can do so only because he alone has authority to forgive sins. And Jesus can forgive sins because he was first judged in our place, receiving the penalty that our sins deserved. Jesus can grant entrance into the kingdom only because he met all the requirements necessary for such an entrance, knowing that none of us could meet them if left to ourselves. That, my friends, is the free gift of God's grace. It's the gospel of God's undeserved, unearned love.
That being said, due to this suspicion of works righteousness, I believe we have neglected much biblical teaching about how true faith must produce good works. True faith must produce good works. True faith must produce good works. The kind of works described by those who are placed on Jesus' right side, personal attention to the sick and imprisoned, hospitality and warm welcome to people whom we find strange, perhaps because of the color of their skin or the language they speak, and generous provision of basic needs for desperate people. Feeding the hungry, welcoming the stranger, visiting the sick, true faith must produce these kinds of good works. You will be assured of your faith by its fruits, the great Heidelberg Catechism says. Now Jesus teaches this idea earlier in his Sermon on the Mount, this idea that true faith must produce what? Good works. He uses the illustration of a tree to help us simple people. Has anyone ever seen a tree before? Pretty common illustration, right? He said this. Oh, here's one in case you haven't. He says, a good tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor a bad tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will know them by their fruits. Putting this all together now, here's how I think we can make sense of the judgment, the final judgment day portrayed by Jesus and Paul's teachings on grace. If you care, if you care about your forever home, (laughs) I beg you to listen up. At the final judgment, Jesus will know the condition of our hearts by the fruits of our lives. If it's the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, and the rest, then it is apparent that the Spirit of Jesus lives in us. If it's the kind of fruit that makes a real difference in how we treat those whom society deems least significant, then it is obvious that we truly believe God raised Jesus from the dead. Remember, Jesus will know us by our fruits. If it's the fruit of good works, Jesus will know that our hearts truly believed in him. If we accept Jesus and the stranger, Jesus will know that we accept Jesus in our hearts. But for those whose lives produce bad fruit, Well, that's a bad tree. Jesus cares not whether they are Lord, Lord Christians. We met some of these Lord, Lord Christians last week in the parable of the bridesmaids. Remember how they cozied up to the Lord, expecting to get into the wedding banquet? Lord, Lord, they said, open to us. But Jesus does not. Jesus teaches quite clearly about these so-called Christians in the Sermon on the Mount. He says, 
Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father in heaven. Could he have said it more clearly? One final scripture passage to make sure we know what we need to know about the final judgment. James, perhaps the brother of Jesus, understood the thread of Jesus' teaching on judgment quite well. Listen to how James' words echo Jesus' words in Matthew 25. He writes in chapter 1, verse 26, If any think they are religious or devoted and do not bridle their tongues but deceive their hearts, their religion is worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to care for orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself unstained by the world. Let's read on. My brothers and sisters, what good is it if people say they have faith but do nothing to show it? Claiming to have faith can't save anyone, can it? Imagine a brother or sister who is naked, never has enough food to eat. What if one of you said, go in peace, stay warm, have a nice meal? What good is it if you don't actually give them what their body needs? In the same way, faith is dead when it doesn't result in faithful activity. Faith without works is dead faith. Like dead wood, it does not bear fruit, but it's good for only one thing, making a bonfire. But faith in Jesus is a living faith, if it is truly faith in Jesus. Living faith cares for orphans and widows in their distress. Living faith preaches not only with one's words, but with the entirety of one's life. Living faith feeds Jesus in the mouth of a starving child. Living faith provides clean water for Jesus to drink in villages all across Africa. Living faith welcomes Jesus into her home, even when he's strange and wears a different color skin. Living faith clothes Jesus with a wig when he's dying of cancer. Living faith shows up to the lonely old man's room as he slowly awaits his death. For Jesus, too, was lonely as he awaited death. Living faith goes to prisons, not expecting to bring Jesus there, but rather expecting to find Jesus there. Do you have a living faith in Jesus? Or are you a Lord, Lord Christian? I can't tell the difference, but Jesus can. The good news is that there's still time to change. The good news is also this. All the services that Jesus identifies in Matthew 25 of living faith Christians, they're all so basic. <laughs> Think about it. Jesus is not asking us to do miracles or move mountains. Jesus is not looking for large heroic acts of kindness. Rather, 
Jesus simply seeks little acts of love done from a heart that relies on him. As 4th century preacher Chrysostom pointed out, Jesus does not say, I was sick and you healed me, or I was in prison and you liberated me. Big miracles aren't happening here. Little ministries are. And yet it is precisely in these ministries that the miracle of the big mystery, eternal salvation, occurs. So this is why Jesus could say his yoke is easy and his burden is light. This list is not hard. (laughs) And it is natural for those who rely on Jesus and believe God raised him from the dead. And the list is not exhaustive. It is not a new legal code we must, must meet, but it's illustrative. I love how Brunner puts it. Every person we meet is dying for a drop of love. Every person we meet is dying for a drop of love. Providing them that drop, that's what counts in the end as living faith. For by grace... You have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not the result of works, so that no one can boast. This is very true. And so are Jesus' words that we will each hear at the final judgment. Just as you did it to one of the least of these, you did it to me. Let it be so with each one of us here today. May we not just pray for forgiveness, but may we amend our ways and do what Jesus says. Let us pray. Holy Spirit of Christ, we beg you for your grace, a grace that pardons and a grace that enables us to obey your teaching, loving the least of these. In Jesus' name, for God's glory we pray. Amen.